All right, tonight let's get our Bibles and go to Revelation 12. As I was talking to Rachel about Revelation 12 this week, she observed Revelation 12 makes you feel good about Revelation because you can understand it. (laughs) So as we've been going through, it hasn't been this hard reading through Revelation this time. We've gone through Revelations chapter 1 through 5. We can understand it. We've gone through chapter 6 through 11, and we can understand most of it. Some parts of it are a little mysterious as far as the locusts coming out of the abyss, things like that, a little mystery there of trying to understand what's, what's being said as far as God's justice and wrath upon those who are persecuting the church. But we get the message. We've got it in Revelation Chapter 6 through 9, we got it in Revelation 11, and now we're going to get another picture of it here from Revelation 12. So as we take a look in Revelation, we want to make sure that we are drawing everything we can out of this passage. Now, as I'm thinking about that, I often wonder, do Christians, and this is a question to think of to yourself, do Christians really need the book of Revelation? And I think some people ask themselves that. Do I need this book? Do I need to understand it? Maybe I can't understand it. I don't see the point of it in the Bible. I've had preachers who have avoided the book of Revelation. I've known that they would not preach it. They would go through the first three chapters and that's it. Or they would preach on the last two chapters and that's it. And they wouldn't touch any other part of it. And I would think if I were in that position where I don't feel good about preaching it, I would hold off on preaching it. But then I would study it. Study it. Study it. It's meant to be there for a reason. So another question to go along with that is, do we need Revelation today? It was written for the first century, but do we need it today? We do. Well, think about that. Think about that. Make some applications on that. I agree. Um, And are we really meant to understand it? I think we do understand it to the extent to which we are intended and need to understand it today. I may not figure out ever the symbolism of the locust out of the abyss. But if that's the only thing I don't understand out of the book of Revelation, then I've done well. All right. So let's take a look at Revelation 12 here. We're going to read through chapter 12, get a little bit into chapter 13, and then pull things together for our conclusion this evening. Chapter 12, it says right here, verses 1 through 6, And a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pangs, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God, to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared for by God, in which she is to be nourished 1,260 days. So what do we understand from that? We have that 1,260 days again, which is three and a half years, a period of time of just showing that there's a completion of God's um, revelation, whereas there's a persecution at the beginning. And here the woman is evidently being persecuted. Literally, the word persecuted in Greek means to be pursued We also see about this woman, she has a crown of her head of 12 stars. 
And she's given a glorious picture here. So she appearing in heaven, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. Very beautiful. She gives birth to a child. Who is this child? I think we know who the child is. He is a child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. We see that in the book of Revelation and other places. But that originates all from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is the original Messiah psalm. It's where we get the word Messiah from. It means anointed. And so you read there about the Son of God. Look in Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, and you'll read that. The Son of God being anointed by God, and He has a rod of iron to rule the nations. And God has chosen Him, His King, His Son. And so this woman is giving birth to the Son of God. Evidently, she can possibly be two different people. It could be a reference, a glorious picture of Mary or a picture of Israel. And I think as we read along and we look at the clues throughout the rest of the chapter, it's very clear that this is talking about Israel and not Mary because Israel here has other children, children who keep God's commandments and who are of the saints and of faith in Jesus Christ. So very much the product of Israel. We also see here the symbol of the red dragon. And the text, as you keep going and reading on, tells you who the red dragon is. It says it's the, the serpent of old. All right, we know that this is Satan. And what's he doing? He's persecuting the woman. He's making war on this woman who gives birth to Christ. Notice something else about the dragon. The dragon has seven heads. Why does that matter? Seven heads and ten horns crowned with diadems. In other words, he has the authority that is ruling in the earth, because we're going to see this later on in connection with the prostitute of Babylon. We're going to see it in connection with the beast uh, and those who are ruling. In fact, you're going to see it in chapter 13 and verse 1. I'm going to go over to chapter 13 and verse 1 and, and read it now. It says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns. That sound familiar? And seven heads and with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on its head, on its heads. So evidently we have this picture of an authoritative kind of kings wearing crowns that are connected with the beast and connected with the dragon who are persecuting Christians and persecuting Israel too. And so we do see that back in Revelation 11 where it says that the Gentiles will trample the holy city. Okay, that's Jerusalem. So the pictures are very clear here. And and what is being revealed to John and given to us that's hidden from the world. The world can't understand these things. But they're quite simple to us. And we'll look at that a little bit further. Now, as we keep reading, we have a depiction that there's a war in heaven. Can you imagine a war in heaven? Imagine angels. Michael and his angels warring against Satan. Well, when we go through the Old Testament, for instance, the book of Job, Satan has always been able to make accusations against Job and appear before God. Well, his end has come. This angel, who continues to be in defiance of God, who tried to tempt Jesus Christ to sin, he has now come to the point where he is cast out of heaven and he's cast upon the earth. And he comes upon the earth with wrath. Let's read a little bit about that. Revelation 12, verse 7. Now war rose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. 
But he was defeated, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. See, we, we get the text interpreted to us. We know who the red dragon is. It's getting clear. And as you read the book of Revelation, especially in these last chapters, you get this explained to us. And it's amazing. All right, look at verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers. Another word for accuser, Satan. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. They have conquered him. Notice this. Those who have been accused... The faithful, they've conquered Satan. How so? They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. And that's a key verse tonight. Be a good memory passage for Wednesday night is Revelation 12, 11. Conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. They were willing to die for what they believed in. And therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows his time is short. You always wonder what Satan's up to, what he's trying to work. Well, he's, he knows the wrath of God. He knows his days are numbered, and he's trying to take as many as possible with him. He's making war upon God's people. He will do anything he can to push you out of following Jesus Christ with all of your heart. So that's part of the message we're getting here in Revelation. And the questions we ask ourselves is, could I do the same thing today? Can I conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb? I've been given the power to. Can I uphold and hold to the word of the testimony that is God's word, the word of truth? Would I do that? Am I willing not to value my life and willing to lay it down if there were a worldwide persecution today? Am I willing to die for what I believe in? If someone threatened your life and said, do you believe in Christ? And your life was decided upon whether you confess Christ or not. You know, there's some Christians in the early centuries, specifically the Gnostics, who said, no, that would be foolish to confess Christ before your enemy. If they're going to kill you, you shouldn't do that. You should just keep your life and move on. They're wrong. Christ says, you confess me and I'll confess you before my father. There's never a context in which we can say it is a place or a time when I should not say that I am not, or that I should lie, that I'm a Christian, or not confess Christ. We've got to carry that with us. Let's finish out the rest of the chapter and some other thoughts here. We see more about the woman, who she is. Verse 13, chapter 12. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So again, she's saved from this. And God has preserved her. Since the serpent poured out water like, like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to help uh, to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. You see the providential work of God. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. So this gives a good indication that this woman is not just Mary, but that this is talking about Israel and her children, the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God. 
we would be in that group. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So as you read Revelation 12, you should read it, understand it, and feel good about it. I understand it, and it gives me courage. Now, I think it'd be fitting tonight. I, I, I think it'd be wrong if I missed over this part of regards to the beast. But I thought it'd be good to give us a head start, especially for Wednesday night. But the beast we see, we already read that verse, verse 1 of chapter 13. There's this beast that's coming out of the sea. It has ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems. It appears to me here a general picture of this beast is not just an individual. Sometimes the word beast is changed to sound like a specific person. But here it's inclusive of this world power that's been given great authority. You can see that in verse 2. They've been given great authority and that authority's come from Satan. There's an interesting description here that comes up again in verse 3. One of the heads was mortally wounded, but its wound was healed, and the whole, mer- whole world marveled as they followed the beast. And we keep reading here, and we find out the world is worshiping the beast. The beast is making war by Satan's power on Christians, on the followers of God and of Christ. Verse 4 of chapter 13, they worshiped the dragon. He had given authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. And then you start figuring out what it means to have the mark of the beast. Furthermore, verse 5, it says, The beast is given a mouth and he's blasphemous against God. And he exercises authority for three and a half years. Forty-two months, it says. So his time is limited. And I look at it that way today. When I see governing powers and I see weakness and corruption, their time is limited. God's justice is coming. And the book of Revelation tells me that, and I rely upon that, and I trust in God for it. In verse 7, it tells us that this blasphemous beast, it says, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And then we see the authority of it. So we start putting it together. Who is this beast that's an accumulation of kings warring against Christians in the first century in this, in this vision that Satan has given them power? It was allowed to make war on them and conquer them. And it says authority was given to it over every tribe, people, language, and nation who dwell on the earth and who worship it. So you start putting together who this is. And then in verse 8 it says, He has authority over all the earth that they worship Him and everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. So all the wicked people have flocked to it and they worship it. So, As we continue to read, I think we're going to see this is the Roman Empire. This is the world power that's at war against Christianity. Something similar is going to happen again, it says in Revelation 20, where Satan will deceive the nations and surround God's people to destroy them. There's another thing that's interesting. Back at verse 3, I I wanted to point this out, but that wounded head that was wounded and then came back to life, there is a legend that was spoken of in the first four centuries of the church and beyond, and it's still a little bit known about it today. Usually you find it in a commentary. It's called Nero Redivivus. And so that's Latin for this, that Nero came back to life. Where would they get that idea of a king coming back to life, of someone resurrecting from the dead? Nero is the picture of the Antichrist, And what we're going to see is that this idea of him coming back to life takes a fuller picture in Revelation 17. 
which I do want to look at before we finish tonight. As a second note, there's a second beast that's mentioned here. Chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, it says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. In other words, this second beast only has authority in the presence of the first. And it makes the earth and its, and its inhabitants worship the first beast, beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now, who would this be? Maybe we... Maybe if we're ignorant and don't know anything about history at that time or what was causing people and influencing people to worship the beast and the leaders of Rome and to adore them. But there was the imperial cult. But I mean, you can reason whatever you you want that there's this false prophet. That's later what this beast is called. He's called the false prophet in Revelation 16. And he's stirring the world up. In fact, he gets to the point where he says, if you don't worship the beast, you won't be able to allow to trade, to buy, or to sell anything because you haven't worshipped Caesar. You haven't shown loyalty to the beast. And so that's that mark of the beast that we read about a little bit later. And that is um, further down, I think, in, in Revelation chapter 16. Is that also mentioned here in this text? There it is, down in verse 17. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. And this is, this is interesting because only twice that I recall in the book of Revelation does John say this calls for wisdom. So use some wisdom here. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, Emperor Nero has been demonstrated to add up to the number 666. I know of nobody else in all of history whose numbers add up to that. Now, if you take the Greek name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos, and you add up, it's called gematria, adding up the letters by their numerical value that they had in that culture. When you add up the numbers of Nero Emperor, uh, Emperor Nero, you get 666. When you add up Jesus Christ, you get 888. So you get that picture of the anti-Christ. So as we look at this, we put these things together. What do we do with it? All right, so we know who the enemy is, and it's recognized right here. Why would God reveal this? He wants Christians to know that there are world powers, and they're being deceived by Satan. And they'll put pressure on you to do what's wrong, to compromise, to say, I mean, you could have gone on back then and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but can I also just worship Caesar as the son of God? Can I not worship someone else? A lot of people justify their actions in that way. Revelation 14, verse 6 through 8, it shows that Christ giving judgment against Babylon And later on, we read that Babylon is the prostitute city that's drunk with the blood of the saints. And justice comes upon this city. You can read Revelation 17 more about those details. In Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11, you have God's judgment. The judgment of Jesus Christ now comes. Remember how we, we, early in Revelation 6 through 9, and also Revelation 11, first you got the persecution, then you got God's justice, right? And judgment. Guess what's happening here? Again, you've got the persecution. Satan comes down to the earth. He deceives the nations. He's got this beast persecuting. And after their three and a half years is up, 
Three and a half years of justice comes. You have bowls of wrath that are poured out by God in Revelation 15 through 16 upon the earth and upon them. And it's futile, but Satan, the false prophet, and the beast gather the nations together to have battle against God and his saints at a place called Armageddon. Revelation 16 and verse 13. This is no literal battle. In fact, even in Revelation, it's not a battle. We call it often call it a battle. There is no battle. They gather there for battle and then they lose. Read Revelation 19. End of story. Christ is victorious. They lose. There is no battle. God is victorious over them. They've already been conquered by the blood of the Lamb. We've already read this in the testimony of the Word. Amazing things to think about, the power that God has given us. All right, back to Revelation 14, 9 through 11. God's judgment is against those who, listen to this, those who worship the beast and bear the mark of the beast. They'll be tormented in fire, unending fire, and their torment will never cease. Great passage to illustrate that hell is unending. And some people have said, well, maybe hell is not forever. Well, for these individuals who worship the beast, who compromised, who have gone after the beast, their torment is forever. And so that gives us a good summary. We've, we've covered a good survey of Revelation 12. We got into depth in chapter 12, a little bit in chapter 13. Got a good survey down to chapter 16. And so we'll have more to discuss on Wednesday night. But I, I don't think it's set right if I don't finish with that key passage of Revelation 17 I've been mentioning all along because I won't be able to speak next Sunday night on this. So I want to look at Revelation 17 before we finish. Revelation 17. Usually I say 9 through 11, but let's start in verse 8. Now the context is this prostitute of Babylon. She's a city. She sits on seven hills. And what's the city that sits on seven hills? Rome. Very clearly. Very good. All right. Every history teacher that's ever come here in here knows that. Um, anybody who's ever studied ancient history knows that, that it is Rome. All right, now look at this, uh, verse 8. It says, The beast that you saw and was and is not is about to rise from the bottomless pit. This is that beast that was wounded and came back to life. This is that picture of Nero reborn. And is there any of the other emperors that resembled the, the wickedness and evil of Nero? Yes. I mean, I think Caligula, even before Nero, kind of set a, a horrible model in wickedness. And Claudius did some wicked things. Of course, we can look at all the Caesars and say something wicked about them. But as far as Nero persecuting Christians, again, it rises again in, in the close future under another emperor named Domitian. So listen to this. Since the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. They're always worshiping the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. I told you that would come up again. You got wisdom? Listen to this. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Well, the woman is the city. Look at the last verse of the chapter. It says the woman you saw is a great city. Verse 18. She sits on seven hills. This is Rome. Look at verse 10. They are also seven kings. Notice these kings. Five have fallen. They've died. One is living now. That's what John is saying. The other has not yet come, and when he does, he will remain for a little while. Well, I've shown you this. The list of Caesars right here. So if you start with Caesar Augustus, 
and you count up to five, it's on Nero. Right? And then after that, um, so there's five that have fallen. So after Nero, you've got Vespasian, one is. Then Titus, who comes for a little while. You can see that on there. And then after him comes the eighth. Well, who's the eighth? Look at verse 11. For the beast that was and is not is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And we start reading that who, the, who the eighth is. He's the beast. He's the one who's coming. He's the one who's going to persecute. And Domitian does that. Others have as well. I've mentioned before that um, there is a governor, Pliny the Younger, who ruled over a northern part of what is Turkey today, the Anatolia, and he wrote to Emperor Trajan. And he said, I've come across these Christians, and I decided to do with them as I thought you would have me to do, just as Emperor Domitian did. Because they didn't worship the beast, they didn't worship the emperor, excuse me, he had them put to death. All right, that was what happened. And yet it's happened at other times that Christians have been persecuted and we've been put on the line. And I think now you got a fuller picture of the book of Revelation. And Lord willing, I have not inferred too much or made any connections here in the text tonight that are wrong. So as we come to conclusion here, how would you have endured? If you lived in the first century, would you have needed a book like this? As the Bible is being uh, finalized and you got the New Testament coming together, would you want the book of Revelation? Would you want it in your church? Would you have written, want it read? Would it have encouraged you? Would it have helped you to think clearly about who you are and be willing to, th- to make a determination that you're not going to worship the beast, that you're not going to be loyal to the idea of worshiping this governing authority, that you're not going to worship with Satan behind it, that you're not going to compromise your faith in Jesus Christ, and that you're willing to die for what you believe in. Well, that's what Revelation brings us to. Is that our faith is serious and it means something to us. Would Revelation have given you courage? Would it have given you endurance? It would have made. I think it would have been a great resource. And that's the meaning of it for us now today. I think about the nations and the people worshiping the beast back then and I look at the world today. Do people today worship governing authorities? Do they worship those who are anti and contrary to Jesus Christ? Could you see in the possible future a world power arising, demanding that you be loyal and worshipful to a world power and and there being a great persecution? That could be on the horizon. We could be a decade away from that. We could be a few years away from that. Things just kind of creep up on us in history and in time. So... I think this is a wonderful book, Book of Revelation. And I hope that it gives you great comfort and endurance and commitment to your Christian faith. It is the perfect book to end the Bible. And it begins with paradise and it ends with paradise. And tonight, the Book of Revelation would encourage you, the bride and the spirit say, come, come to Jesus. Come to Christ, come to the blessings of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth, to that paradise where there's the tree of life and you will resurrect and live forever. It is only in Christ that you can have all your sins washed away in his blood. Whatever your needs are this evening, come to Christ. Let's pray together. Let's stand and sing together now.